This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings, and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Hi, everybody. It's Dr. Karen, and this is episode 15 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I sit down with my colleague, Rebecca Robbins. Rebecca is a speech language pathologist who specializes in working with autistic individuals, particularly really young kids. And she has a lot of experience working with kids who are nonverbal and working with families to help not just facilitate speech development, but also language. So if you have a child who is not talking or is not necessarily progressing at the rate that you expect them to, and you're wanting to know how you can help them expand on the language that they know and help improve their communication skills in the home, this episode is a must listen. And if you have a child who maybe doesn't have any particular diagnoses and you just want to know how you can support your child, how you can push them without making it frustrating for them, and how you can encourage them to grow in a healthy way when it comes to their speech and their language development, or if you know someone who has a child who maybe has a diagnosis, maybe they have been diagnosed with autism, maybe they've been diagnosed with something else that impacts their ability to acquire speech 
and impacts learning and cognition, then this episode is going to be really helpful. Rebecca shares a lot of really practical real-life examples about how to help get kids engaged in learning, how to improve their ability to attend, even if they aren't able to attend for one minute at a time. She gives some really great examples about how to help motivate kids and get them engaged in their learning and communication. And also, she gives some really helpful tips for how to encourage your child to speak or use any type of functional means of communication, even if they aren't talking or if they're not talking as much as you would expect them to. And you just want to know ways that you can play with your child, engage with your child in a way that helps to move them along when it comes to their development. Before we get started, I wanted to share a brand new resource that I have for parents called the Time Tracking Journal that's designed to help parents help their kids become more organized and responsible. The Time Tracking Journal is for you if you have a child who gets easily overwhelmed by any type of task that is challenging to them, something like homework, chores, or even getting themselves ready in the morning, maybe even cleaning their room, if they tend to procrastinate, if they tend to dig their heels in and sometimes seem like they aren't sure where to start and you're not really sure if it's an issue of motivation, if it's that they aren't sure what to do, and you're just struggling to figure out how to support them, I walk through an evidence-based strategy for supporting your kids through those types of tasks in the time tracking journal. To grab this journal, all you need to do is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal, and you will be able to sign up. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal to grab that resource. So now let's get to the interview. Today, I am joined by Rebecca Robbins from Mindshaper SLP. So first of all, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. You're welcome. So I wanted to just start off by having you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. I am a speech language pathologist, and I primarily have focused on the bulk of my career in working with children with autism spectrum disorder. And I recently, in August of 2019, decided to resign from my full-time job at a school district and start go full-time with my private practice that I had been building on the side of my full-time jobs for the few years prior, um, Mindshaper SLP, with a focus on parent training, as well as the direct therapy that I do with my students with autism. Because I really always loved, over the course of my career, the work I did in early intervention. And I loved how when you were working with an EI case that you were in the home and the parent was down there on the floor with you and you really had the opportunity to train the parent to do what you do after you leave and the results were just so great in early intervention. And a large part of that, I believe, is because of that parent training component. And over the course of my career, I realized that 
that parent training component kind of goes away as the kids get older. And I know that especially with the autism diagnosis, the need for the parent training doesn't necessarily at the parent training at home doesn't necessarily go away and there weren't many resources out there available. So one of my goals and aims with Mindshaper SLP is to eventually build an online parent training platform for families that are that have autism in their families. So why is it that the parent training component isn't done as often for kids that are older? I think what happens is when the kids turn school age, the focus of the system turns towards the academics for the kids and what is the need of the student in relation to their academics. And it gears less towards the home and the community. And I think it's just the paradigm of where the services take place is in the school district. And that's where the the funding is for the services. The focus of services is primarily with the schools providing it. Mm -hmm. And there just aren't enough community resources available right now to get that funding support as well outside of the school day. And I think the other thing is autism really, and and especially like Asperger's syndrome, which is no longer actually a diagnosis, but it was only like really in the nineties that this started becoming more of a prevalent diagnosis. And I just don't think that the realization of the need for parent training has been around. It's just starting to come around that there is really a need for it. When you work with parents or when parents come to you for your private practice or when you were doing early intervention or or even in the schools, what are the things that parents are wanting help with? I did a lot of work in the preschool age group and early and elementary school. And I worked at a private school for kids with autism. And then in the public school, I was in a K-2 life skills program. So I was working with kids that had a high level of need. So really, it was just a matter of how do I get my kid to talk? Or I don't know how to help my child when they're crying. And how do I get them to say more things? But from a parent perspective, it was really just how do I get my kid to talk? (laughs) You know, and a lot of my students, not a lot of them, there was a percentage of them that were nonverbal that I also over the years have developed a therapy protocol that I would use with these students that would come onto my caseload being nonverbal or minimally verbal. And I would really make sure that I was sending all the materials that I was using in my therapy room home to the parents so that they could use them as well. And also one of the benefits of the fact that we have all this access to technology now, a lot of my nonverbal students would have communication devices on iPads. So it was really easy for me to videotape myself during my sessions with the student and have the video go home so the parents could see. And I would just write in the home book like, hey, we recorded a new video of speech today so that you guys can carry this over at home. So you had a mix of students who were using alternative means of communication. And then also, were you also working with kids who had, who were verbal that were in the academic curriculum and at a different level? 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There was the whole broad range of the spectrum that I was working with for sure. And, you know, when I was working in the private school for kids with autism, uh, there were some of these kids that started because they're so little when they started that age, Mm -hmm. they were like preschool age. Some of them were maybe even just under three when they started and they would stay until they're almost five. And they might have started with me being nonverbal. And then by the time they're, they were getting ready to leave the school or enter into kindergarten, they were pretty verbal at that point. And their language had really taken off as their speech production abilities had been able to take off. So yes, I've, I've worked with the really verbal kids and also the kids that just have a really hard time knowing how to control their speech production. Because of motor control or because of other things or a little bit of... Yeah, I I think it's it depends on the child, as I'm sure you know. I would often see that apraxia is a motor planning disorder of speech production, that that is a, a co-occurring diagnosis that often happens with kids with autism. I have also seen kids that were diagnosed with autism. This happened to me in one case, and I have my suspicions about some others, but that were diagnosed with autism and they were primarily nonverbal. But then as they gained the ability to produce their speech, the autism diagnosis was taken away. That's interesting. So do you think that that was accurate? Were they misdiagnosed early on because of the apraxia? I think it was, um, yeah, being misdiagnosed at an early age because the one particular child that I was thinking of, he was very, very social and a master at nonverbal communication. (laughs) You don't typically see that in a little guy with autism who's also nonverbal. They usually are pretty impaired with their ability to communicate nonverbal, nonverbally. He was um, Mm -hmm. very engaged socially and very good with the nonverbal communication. And I had a grad student that I was supervising at the time, and we were baselining his skills at the beginning of his therapy. And we showed him a picture of a banana and he pantomimed peeling a banana and then acted like a monkey. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Because I was going to ask, what does that mean for people who might not be thinking about nonverbal communication? What types of nonverbal communication do you typically see? That kind of answers the question for that particular Mm -hmm. student. But What other types of nonverbal communication do you see in these kids who don't necessarily have speech yet, or you're not sure if they're going to develop speech? If you have a child with that has apraxia and does not have any other diagnosis with it, they might have a greater ability to use a finger to point to what they want, drag their parent to a room to get, to show them what they want to show them, pantomime kind of like this little guy did. They might have more of those nonverbal skills. But when you're talking about a child who also has a diagnosis of autism, they're going to be a little more limited in their ability to use nonverbal communication, but you can see pointing, also see them pulling on mom and dad. You could see like Mm -hmm. gestures of like reaching their hands up if they want to get picked up, kind of like you would see a baby before they develop their ability to, to talk. And also 
crying and tantruming and (laughs) behaviors or, you know, it's their way of communicating to their parents what they want or what they're not getting because they are at a lack of a functional way to do it. And so it sounds like what you're saying is that there are, and and I want to circle back to explaining what apraxia is, since I know that there might be some Mm -hmm. parents listening that want more of an explanation. I know that therapists who are listening might know. But when you're saying that there is a when there's a difference between a child who has an autism diagnosis and another diagnosis that impacts motor planning, and then you have another child that just has a diagnosis that impacts motor planning, that the kids who have autism as well, the nonverbal behaviors are things that are a little bit harder for them to pick up on. But it's sounding like what you're saying is that we can still teach that. It's just not something that they might automatically pick up on on their own. Yes. So I'm going to just kind of back up right here. And since your primary audience is parents, I want to just make sure that everyone is very clear that there is a difference between speech and language. Speech is your body's actual motor ability to produce speech sounds. That's what speech is. And language is your ability to express your thoughts and ideas, the rules that govern how those sounds are put together to form words, to form sentences and phrases. It's how well you understand what's being said to you. It's following directions. It's all the other stuff that's language. When you're talking about a child that just has apraxia with no other diagnosis along with it, then that's really a disorder of their speech production. Whereas a child with a diagnosis of autism, that diagnosis is impacting their language skills. So the ability to initiate alone is typically impaired with a child with autism. And they typically tend to be more self-engaged, self-directed, rather than a neurotypical child that is their brain is primed and wired for socialization. A child with autism, their neurological system is not wired in that same way. So when you're working with families, and and I think that that's one, one thing that is a common question is just the difference between speech and language and how they go together. So what you're saying with apraxia, it's it's a motor planning disorder that is impacting speech, but the other things that we've been talking about impact language. When you're working with parents, when you have a child who isn't talking a lot and parents are concerned, they're not really sure what to do, how do you navigate figuring out where to go with that. I mean, because I know that a lot of parents and I've experienced this as well is that some parents are like, well, I really want them to talk, which obviously, you know, that (laughs) that's that's one of the obvious things that people think about when we think about communication is is speech. But when there are these other modes that can be effective and the child might be navigating towards these other things, how do you figure out the right way to go where whether you focus on speech, whether you focus on an alternative system to get them to communicate, like using pictures and gestures and signs and other things, how do you figure out what to do? Well, the answer is you do both. 
you really want to give this child an effective means to communicate their wants and needs as quickly as possible. So requesting, asking for what you want, and especially what you're motivated to have, as opposed to just like requesting a fork because you need to eat Mm -hmm. food is a little different than saying, I want the cookie, you know? So targeting requesting first and foremost is very powerful. So if you can give the family a way for their child to be able to ask for the things they want and need, whether it's by teaching sign language, if that's accessible to the child using pictures, um, but you can just use visual cues that the child points to or there are more dynamic and robust electronic communication devices that show up as iPad apps as well. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have to be the fancy communication app with all the bells and whistles at first. It just needs to be something, or it could be something as simple as teaching the child to point because maybe the child doesn't even have that just yet. So we always start by figuring out exactly where the child is And then that kind of helps us determine what the next steps would be. So if it's a child that is pointing for what they want and they are dragging mom into the kitchen for what they want, okay, great. That means that he already knows communicative intent is what it's called. He already knows that if I want something, I need to communicate somehow to this other person to get it. So that's step one step. And sometimes you have to teach that. And then step two is the given, giving them the effective system or means in which to get the message across. So maybe it is putting, telling the family, we're going to put a bunch of visual cues up around your house. So when your child wants something, they can point to the picture of what they want. Or if the child is more advanced or maybe even a little bit older in age, then maybe a more dynamic system like an iPad app is the right answer for that child. But then in the meantime, you're also continuing to work on the child's speech production abilities. But the thing about it is that's a that's a marathon, not a sprint. So we don't want to focus purely on the child producing speech. And in the meantime, leave them hanging with no effective means of communication at all. So we really have to focus on both at the same time. Do you ever experience where people are focused on the child communicating in a specific way and missing other things that might indicate progress? It's possible. So for instance, if you have a nonverbal child and you're bouncing them on your lap, playing some sort of bouncing game and you stop and the child starts bouncing their body, a parent might miss that that's communication and that that's their attempt to initiate saying again, more, and they might be saying to the child, more, say more, which by the way, don't teach your child more (laughs) because then you won't know what they want more of. Teach them the actual word. So bounce, let's say, yeah, bounce. So like bounce, say bounce, bounce. So maybe in that instance, they might miss the fact that the bounce of the body was the initiation of the communication. And then they're focusing more on the speech production. So It depends on what level the child is at as to whether or not you would accept them moving their body as the initiation of the communication, or if you do want to push a little further to get that higher level of requesting. Because if you're just starting out with your child and they 
have very limited ways of communicating. They're basically have no speech production. You want to praise that movement of the body that's saying, bounce me more, mom, because that's going to start teaching them that communicative intent that we just talked about. And that we need our kids to have that light bulb moment of, oh, when I communicate, things happen in my world. I get what I want. Mom does what I want because that is what creates that internal motivation for them to continue to try and communicate in other ways. Yeah, that makes sense. How do you tease out when to accept a certain level of of intent versus maybe pushing them or moving them along to that next level? I think it's dependent on the things you've been working on. So if you've been playing that bouncing game with your child for a while, and you now know as the parent, when they bounce their body up and down, that means they want to do it again. And that pattern has been established and the child is easily and readily doing it. It's time to take it up a notch. So basically it's when you're working on a skill and all of a sudden it's that skill becomes really easy for the child. The child's generalizing that skill to other people or other contexts. That's an indication that, okay, now we can try to take it to a new level. What does it look like when you challenge them to move to that next level? How do you do that? What I try to do in my therapy, um, let's just stay with that bouncing on the knees example. I will be, while I might not be requiring the child to say bounce, I am providing the model the whole time. So while they're bouncing on my lap, I'm going bounce, 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 bounce. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is now you're seeing that they're doing, they bounce their body up and down and that's, and you're like, oh, you want to bounce? Yeah. Bounce. Can you say ba, ba, ba? and see if they can imitate the sound. Or you could even try with the word, can you bounce, say bounce, bounce. And if they give any attempt towards saying the word, yeah, here we go, bounce, 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 stop and pause. The pause, so creating the pattern, especially in like a play routine, is really important. Creating the pattern, and so the child knows what's expected and what this, what what they are expecting you to say and as they're doing the play routine. And then when you pause and give space and room, then that enables the child to try to communicate in a new way because they're expecting you to say bounce. You're not saying bounce. So that might prompt them to say bounce because they want it to happen again and they're used to hearing it. So it's exposing them to models all along and slowly stretching them outside of their current abilities with a lot of support and prompting. So it sounds like a lot of modeling and pausing and repeating the routine and modeling whatever that next level is. Yeah. And one of the things I like to teach my students in my nonverbal no more course is what I call the rule of three when we're talking about teaching the child, turning the speech into requests. So what that is, is When you're teaching a new request, you as the adult say it three times in a row and give it to the child. You don't expect the child to request it. So again, I'm thinking more of a child with autism in this example. Mm -hmm. So if I want to teach the child to say milk 
and I'm going to pour a little bit of milk in a cup. I'm not going to give them the whole cup of milk because that only gives me one opportunity to request just a little pour into the cup. And I say, milk, milk, milk. And I give, give them the milk. When they're done, I do it again. Milk, milk, milk. And I create that pattern about four or five times where I'm not really expecting anything from the child. But now the child is used to hearing that that repetition of milk, milk, milk. And so now on the sixth time, when I present them the sip of milk, I say milk, milk, I pause. I have an expectant look on my face. I'm doing it right now, but you can't see it because this is a podcast. (laughs) Um, I have an expectant look on my face and I look at the child. And sometimes because they're used to hearing that word three times in a row, they will then fill in that third time after that pattern is established. So that's a little trick that I like to employ when I'm teaching a child to initiate requests. It's really interesting how that happens, how you when you just give them a little bit of space, how sometimes they're like, oh, okay. And and they'll just try it. I just want to say one thing about the space thing. I think that's a very, very good point. And it's really important because I know for me as a beginning SLP, I thought that I had to fill all the airspace in my therapy sessions. And I think parents do too, especially when they have young children. You, you hear a lot They'll have the book out. What's this? What color is that? What's the cow say? Da, da, da. Like they're fire. It's almost like the kids are being constantly quizzed. Yeah. And it's a lot more valuable for the kids rather than asking them a bunch of questions that you know the answer to. Just commenting. Oh, I see a cow. And then pause. I see a pig. The pig says oink and kind of just allow for the comment to land and then the airtime, the space after your comments, because that gives your child room to participate in their own spontaneous way to the conversation rather than just answering a bunch of drill-like questions. Yeah, I agree that that is something that I had to learn and that's something that I've talked to a lot of my colleagues parents that I've worked with as well, just, I think that people in general, I don't know if this is a a cultural thing, but we're not always comfortable with, with silence and pauses. We feel like we have Mm -hmm. to fill the space with words and that might not always be the case. Exactly. And it is tricky when you're talking about the autism population, you know, finding that balance between giving them the prompting that they need and then also fading it out so that it does they don't become prompt dependent. So it can be a tricky balance, but that space and that pause is really so important because sometimes the kids just need a longer time to process to be able to initiate their communication. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to take a quick break to talk about a brand new resource I have for parents, and then we'll get back to the interview. Everyone knows that homework isn't a kid's favorite thing to do, but wouldn't it be nice to get through the day without meltdowns and power struggles? For a lot of parents that I work with, it starts in the morning as they're trying to get everyone out the door on time and then continues throughout the day as clutter is piling up in every corner of the house. But when it's time to get homework done, that's when the daily arguments really start. 
And sometimes kids are willing to spend more time arguing than actually getting their work done, which makes it really hard to enjoy the evening as a family or as a parent have time for self-care after everyone goes to bed. So if this sounds familiar, you're certainly not alone. In my time as a pediatric speech pathologist supporting students with diverse learning needs, I have heard these things from a lot of the families that I've worked with. But what a lot of people don't realize is that things like defiance, refusing to do work, avoidance, procrastination, lack of motivation, focus and effort, or just overall underperforming when it comes to homework and schoolwork, a lot of these things are symptoms of a bigger problem. And procrastination is often a sign of a skill-based issue that impacts many highly intelligent people. Which means if you have a child who does tend to procrastinate, it doesn't mean that they have a behavior problem or that they're lazy. It simply means that they might not have the right skills to know how to get that task done. The good news is that when you address the root cause with the right strategy, it's possible to help kids keep track of their things, pay attention to details, become aware of deadlines, start and finish tasks in a reasonable amount of time, or to be able to sense how long tasks will take so that they can plan ahead. And most importantly, experience some success so they can envision themselves being successful again in the future. That's why I've created the Time Tracking Journal. The Time Tracking Journal is a simple toolkit that walks parents through a set of strategies that will help build time management, motivation, and self-confidence in their kids while they're doing daily tasks like homework and chores. Once you learn how to use a strategy, this is something really simple that you can do in about 10 to 15 minutes a day. And when you sign up for the time tracking journal, not only do you get the actual toolkit, which is a downloadable journal that just walks you through a set of steps to help build these skills in your kids as they're doing their day-to-day -day tasks. You'll also learn some strategies to help improve time management skills, to help kids understand how done looks, and to help kids get tasks done more efficiently and effectively and build critical thinking skills in the process. To grab the time tracking journal, all you need to do is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. One strategy done consistently can be the difference between constant power struggles and a peaceful, thriving home. And that's exactly what I show you how to do with the time tracking journal. So just go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal to check it out. What are some things that come up when you're coaching parents through activities like you just described? What are some questions or concerns or, or just challenges that come up as you're working through that with families? I think that sometimes parents just don't know how to play and be silly with their kids. I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges is they have to kind of learn a new way to interact and engage with their child. So again, like getting out of the habit of 
doing it for the child rather than letting the child struggle so that they need to initiate some sort of communication. So parents definitely don't like to see their kids cry. They don't like to see their kids struggle a little bit, but it's in that struggle that that growth occurs and that they get that motivation to communicate. I'm not talking about, you know, you're setting up some impossible scenario for your child and watching them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if they ask for a cookie, give them the unopened bag that you know they can't open. And now guess what? They have to ask you to open it rather than just doing it for them. Oftentimes parents are so good at just anticipating their child's needs that they don't set up the opportunities for the request to happen because, you know, it's busy. We're, we're trying to get multiple kids out the door or whatever, and you're just going about your day. But so shifting that thought process to not anticipating what the child needs, but allowing the child to communicate to you what they need. When that happens. So for example, if the parent has really been good about anticipating the needs and the the child hasn't had to learn how to ask for things or just manipulate their environment in any way and now they're they're learning how do you manage finding that balance between letting them get just a little bit frustrated just enough to to be motivated and to create that that challenge and and some learning versus so frustrated that it's traumatic and it's a complete meltdown. How do you navigate that? I think you have to gauge what you know you've been working on with your child. So in that example that I just gave you with the bag of cookies, if you've been working on your child saying open to request for a while now, and he's demonstrated the ability to do it in certain contexts, but he always needs prompting or he'll only request it for something that he's super motivated to get and no other time, but the child has demonstrated the ability to do it, you can feel a little more comfort in letting that child struggle a little bit because you know they have the skill. But you wouldn't put the child in a position where you're going to ask them to do something that you've never established any sort of pattern for, you've never taught them before how to do, that would be kind of a big leap out of where they currently are functioning and then not provide them any prompting for too long. So maybe give them the bag of cookies and wait a second or two, but then when they start to go, eh, eh, you say, say, oh, open and give them the model and then they can imitate your model. Yeah, sure. I can open it. And then the next time you try to delay it a little bit longer and kind of gauge it that way. Mm -hmm. Do you ever find that some kids just, if they've had a really long day, that they're less, less tolerant of things that are a little challenging? Do you have to gauge that as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Especially for the younger kids. And you also have to keep in mind, one of the things I always teach about requesting is the potency of the thing that the child wants. So like the the potency, the strength or how much the child wants it. Your child is not going to be very motivated to ask for a food item if they just had a bowl of ice cream. Mm -hmm. There's something to be said for scarcity and deprivation in terms of increasing a motivation for 
the child to want to eat something. And if you know that your child did not sleep well the night before, they're out, they're having allergies or they're just cranky, then that's the time that you're going to give them a little bit more support. Mm -hmm. Even if you are trying to work on them being more independent on that particular skill, like today's maybe not the day to push the envelope on that. You know, you got to have to use your judgment in that respect. Yeah. There's some days we'd just be like, give me the cookies already. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Like any, any person would feel like that. Exactly. And also you have to, as a parent, keep in mind your own mental health and your, yeah. your own capacity to, to make every interaction a learning opportunity. Maybe like you're having a bad day and you don't have the capacity to have your child request every single bite of that cookie and just know it's okay to just give them the cookie for that day. Give yourself a break, you know, having one opportunity where you don't make them request every single bite of the cookie is not going to make or break their progress. If you barely slept the night before, because you're up with your other child that was sick, you know? Yeah. I imagine that gets even more interesting to navigate when there are multiple children in the home and they're under a certain age and things like that. I'm curious what kind of difference that makes, like, especially if you have a set of parents who has one child who doesn't have any specific diagnoses, and then their second child does have some kind of a diagnosis that means they have to do things a little bit differently. Does that, is that something that comes up a lot where they're kind of like, well, this worked for my other kid. Why isn't it working over here? I think what happens honestly sometimes is where I see that becoming more of a difficulty is with the grandparents. (laughs) Mm, That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes the extended family or the grandparents have a harder time understanding that they the traditional ways of raising a kid just don't apply in this circumstance and you have to do things a little bit differently. And yeah, yeah, and they sometimes can have a a difficult time because they might be set in their ways, changing their approach and not because they don't want to or anything like that, just because, well, in my day, this is how we did it sort of thing. Right. Not really fully understanding that there's a learning difference here and that way it's not that this child is being stubborn or lazy or or any of those adjectives. It's that they just genuinely need a different approach. So I have seen that happen quite a few times. I'm sure that that can be interesting to navigate as well, especially if grandparents are taking an active role in the caretaking, if they're the one that watches the kids when the parents are off at work, or if they're just involved in general. So you have something that you teach parents called the motivation map. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Sure. So this is a free downloadable PDF guide, and it's just a simple five-step system that teaches parents how to utilize their child's interest to engage them in the learning process. So it literally takes the parents through um, a very easy to follow step-by-step approach. That first is you fill out what's called an interest inventory, and there's a bunch of different categories, and you just write down all the things that your child is interested in. 
And then you go through and circle like the top 10 that your child is interested in. And then I go into talking about how to incorporate those interests into the learning process so that a child who is not engaged in the learning process, you can start to build that motivation and engagement because you have incorporated their interest into the activity, which makes it inherently more interesting and more fun. So it could be like, first you do this and then you get that. So first clean up your room, then you can play on the iPad outside of learning environments too, for maybe like household chores and responsibilities, such as cleaning the room so that the child has an end goal. When I get through this activity, I know that I get to engage in this fun thing. Or what I try to do as often as possible too, is find ways to actually embed the child's interest into the learning activity as much as possible so that the activity in and of itself is fun and engaging because when the child is having fun and is interested in the activity, that means their attention is on the activity. And with attention, that's when we can really start to remember what we're learning and really process what we're learning. You need that attention to be able to really make progress with academic sorts of tasks or learning tasks or even therapeutic tasks like learning to label pictures or things of that nature. So an example of a time that I've done this, I had a child who was on the autism spectrum and he was very active, did not like to sit still very much at all. And I had a goal that he had to receptively point to a picture in an array of three pictures for like 50 vocabulary words. We were working on improving his ability to understand various vocabulary nouns, right? So if I just put the pictures out on the table and said, point to cat, he could care less. He did not want to attend to that activity. It was not fun for him. He would, it would be hard for him to sit at the table and attend to it. So what I did was one, I took his, the requirement of him having to sit off the table, (laughs) you know, like he didn't, he could stand as long as he could stay at the table, he could stand. And then he had, there was this little ball track that I have that he loved to put the balls down the ball track. So I would take the balls and I had three styrofoam cups. I turned them upside down and I would hide the ball under one of the pictures and it would be under the target picture. So when I would say point to cat, And he pointed to cat, I'd pick up the cup and there would be his ball. So I was reinforcing his choice and he was engaged to look at the, really look at the pictures to see which one was cat because he knew if he got it right, he would get the ball to go play with his toy. So that's a way, an example of how I embedded the interest into an unrelated task that made the task itself more engaging and interesting. And the child really made good progress on that goal because he was motivated to find what was under the cup. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's something that adults also respond to. It's just, uh, there's all kinds of apps and things now, not that you are using technology in this situation, but that's definitely something that's been studied where gamification does make things more engaging for better or for worse. But obviously in this situation, it was used in a way that was 
positive. Do you find with those inventories that it helps parents to just in general, not just for purposes of learning a specific activity, but just in general, have more awareness of the kinds of things that their kids are into? Yeah, I do. And especially for a kid that has a limited interest inventory or on the surface, it appears to be limited. So when you sit down with all the categories that I have listed out and actually write down, it starts, it's like um, kind of flexes a muscle in the brain that gets you kind of thinking about how your child interacts with the world in a new way. And so it gets you seeing things you could put on the list that maybe you would have overlooked in the past and then seeing how, okay, well, my child, one of the things I like to teach too is with the sensory preferences. So my child likes to rub his blanket on his face. Oh, okay. So he likes to touch soft things. So how, how can we incorporate touching soft things into a learning task or into some other toy or activity? A lot of kids like spinning and light up toys. So what kind of toys can I now bring in that are new and introduced to this child that have that spinning aspect to it so that I am now playing into the sensory preference of looking visually looking at something that spins, but I'm introducing it in a new way. So I'm also expanding upon the play repertoire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask about is that do you find that that's helpful for parents to, especially if they find that their child has some very specific things and it seems like they only like those things, does that help them come up with ideas of things that they could have their kids try so that they expand the number of things they're interested in or give them ideas about different activities that their kids might like to do based on their sensory profile? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it also, sometimes we just have to pair an activity with a different reinforcer so that they're, they're now associating this other activity as being in the presence of something else that they really enjoy by that association, that other activity becomes motivating. So like if your child really likes listening to a song or whatever, maybe you have that song playing as you ask your child to color a picture. So now they're okay with coloring the picture because they get to listen to their favorite song. And then the more you do that, they the child might start to develop an intrinsic motivation for coloring at that point because it's now been paired with an enjoyable activity. And I wonder if that could just give them an idea about ways that they could set up their environment to make things more enjoyable, like just help kids develop an awareness of, oh, when I when I have music playing, this thing that I don't like to do as much is is more interesting to me. So maybe this is something that I, I'm thinking about how people like to listen to their, you know, their devices while they work out so that they mm-hmm can listen to a movie or music while they're doing something that might be a little bit uncomfortable. I'm just, I don't know. Yeah, no, totally. When I work with my older kids, um, as I do some executive functioning coaching as well, Mm -hmm. I will ask them, you know, on a scale of one to 10, 
with one being this task is easy and I love it. And a 10, this task is really, really hard. It's the worst thing ever. How would you, what number would you rate this activity at? And what, and then once they give that number and you say, okay, so let's say they said it's a seven. Okay. Well, how can we make this activity like a five? Mm-hmm. And see if they can come up with ideas and suggestions of how to make this activity feel a little easier. Well, if it wasn't so long, maybe it would be easier. Okay, cool. What if we set a timer for five minutes and when five minutes is up, you get to take a break for a minute and then come back. How mm-hmm. does that feel? Yeah. Um, and so with a child or an older child that has the ability to kind of talk about their own learning like that, you can use that approach. But with a younger child, you might, as the parent, have to kind of impose that sort of a thing. So if you're working with like a child who's in kindergarten or first grade and they don't want to do their homework, you can say, okay, how about we set the timer for like five minutes and really make sure you're like use um, an actual timer that the child can see all mm-hmm. the phones these days, I think have visual timers on them. Yeah. So you they can don't... actually see the, the hand moving. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, you can see the time accru- accruing or going down. And um, so, so you say you can, we'll do this for five minutes and then you can play iPad for one minute. And then you set the timer for one minute during the iPad time. Okay, iPad time's over. It's time to do five more minutes of math. And over time, slowly expand upon that time so that they're doing longer intervals of the work. Mm-hmm. But when you set it up like that, and this is one of the things I teach in the motivation map is to use the timers. When you set it up like that and you stay true to your word, that's really important. If you say five minutes, only make your child do five minutes. Definitely give them the iPad immediately after. And when that iPad time is up, go back to the five-minute time. Don't try to push them like one. Oh, let's see if you can do one more minute. Like really stay true to your word. Mm-hmm. Because when the child knows that you're only going to make them do as much as you say, then they're going to be more willing to transition back to the activity and to come to the activity again in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I think just that consistency of do you keep your word? <laughs> yeah. I, it almost reminds me that that you described of the five minutes and then we're going to do a little brain break and then we're going to go back to it. It almost reminds me of the Pomodoro technique where uh, you and this is more for obvi- for obviously for adults. But I know some people who have ADHD or just who want to get something done that maybe they're having a hard time motivating themselves to do it and they need to chunk it out. They'll do Pomodoros. And I don't, are you familiar with that? I'm not. It's a very similar thing, but it's that you just do things in time blocks and then you do, you can take a break and you can come back. You do the activity for a set amount of time and then you set a timer. I think it's like something like 30 minutes and you do you do on and off like that. And then for the off time, you just pick whatever activity that you want to do. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a reinforcement, but it's also kind of like, all right, it's a brain break. So it's, there's some purpose to it where it's, okay, I'm doing this to kind of get up, stretch, give myself a sensory break or whatever I need, and then I'm going to come back to it. 
Right. Yeah. And I can imagine that it, it would also help with procrastination and task initiation because it's like, oh, well, I could do 30 minutes. And I think it's just, again, with the overwhelm of it being hard, especially with those kids, you mm-hmm. mentioned the older kids who where you're working on executive functioning. But but yeah, obviously for the younger kids, it would probably need to start with just five minutes. Yeah. And some kids, it's even less. Right. And sometimes, you know, the goal is, for instance, maybe your child has a hard time sitting at the dinner table. You don't want to target the child sitting at the dinner table the whole time and also eating all their vegetables all at once. You know, you have to pick one target at a time. And maybe the expectation is at first you come sit at the table for one minute and then you can get up. And then when the child can easily sit at the table for one minute, then you can expand upon that time. And then once the child is able to sit for the duration of the meal, that's when you can start to target. You maybe, you know, now you need to eat your vegetables, (laughs) but yeah. And just kind of taking it in little bitty pieces and it's okay if the initial target is one minute. Yeah. I have a lot of parents who one minute would be where they would want to start because it is, the, the idea of 30 minutes is just really overwhelming. So I think that's helpful to know. <laughs> yeah. And especially if you have a very active child or a child that has a very difficult time sitting still and paying attention, you need to keep it short and manageable because we want to set the child up for success because that's when whatever we're doing will be effective because it's not out of the realm of the child's capabilities. Yeah, like a muscle, (laughs) like flexing a muscle. Well, this seems like a good place to wrap up. But before we do that, where can people go to find more information about what you do and how to connect with you? Sure. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at MindShaperSLP. My name is Rebecca Robbins, but you'll find my social media handles at MindShaperSLP. And you can also visit my website at MindShaperSLP.com. And I also have a gift for the listeners of your podcast of 10% off of two of my parent programs that are geared towards children with apraxia and nonverbal children. So I have those links. Do you want me to say them now or do you want to just put them in your show notes? Um, you can say them and then I'll put them in the show notes as well. And all this stuff that she's mentioning now, I will put in the show notes as well. For Nonverbal No More, which is an online course and lifetime membership that really teaches families how to implement my therapy protocol in their own home for their nonverbal or minimally verbal children. That is bit.ly slash nonverbal no more 10 for 10% off. And if you kind of want to just dip your toe in the water of nonverbal no more, I have the Your Child Can Say Sounds kits, which teaches my system of hand cues and just some of the basics of how to prompt speech sounds and activities you can use to promote different speech sounds. And that website is bit.ly slash mysoundkit10 for 10% off the sound kits. And also, if you would like to get the free PDF motivation map guide, you can just go to bit.ly slash motivate my child. Great. And we will, like I said, I will put these, all these links in the show notes as well so that you can grab them. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. 
All right. This is a good place to wrap up, but I had just a couple housekeeping things before we end. First, don't forget to check out the time tracking journal. If you want a tool to help you get through homework and chores with ease without nagging or bribes. If you struggle to get your kids to be independent with some of those day-to-day tasks that they may not like to do, but need to learn how to do in order to be independent people one day. And if you want to just have peace of mind that you're number one, helping them build the skills now that they need to eventually be successful adults one day and Number two, a more immediate need to help you get through the day and retain your sanity at the same time. So to learn a simple set of strategies and get a simple tool that's going to help build the skills your kids need in order to be independent and organized and keep track of their assignments, just go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash time journal. Next, I wanted to remind you that it helps us so much if you leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple. All you need to do is just search for Are They 18 Yet? and you can leave us a review. There's usually a big purple button that you have to click if you're on Apple that will allow you to leave a review. So that helps us to get the show in front of more people who need it. And also, I may give you a shout out on a later episode. Our featured listener review of the week comes from screen name Harper D. They say, excited about this podcast as a mother of three and fellow SLP. I'm excited about this resource. A great listen for any parent. Thank you so much for your review. We certainly appreciate it. This is the Are They 18 Yet podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Karen. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in episode 16. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? 
you need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.